So today we are talking about the golden age of the, and apparently subheaders provide more information, but um, we are talking about the golden age of church fathers. Um, we've, we've talked about church fathers, she just caught it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, did I? That's, that's, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I had a hundred things going on today when I was trying to type up my notes. <laughs> um, you ever want to get busy, take some time off. Yeah. <laughs> um, church fathers. Um, we've talked about several church fathers already. The pre-Nicene church fathers. Um, like... Origen and Tertullian, and names that if you're studying the scriptures, you're going to see the, and you're studying the history and how we developed and you're studying theology, you're going to see these names come up and over and over again. Well, between the Council of Nicaea, which is 325, and the Council of Chalcedon, which is 451, uh, we have some of the most notable church fathers and some of the greatest works of the the early church father the, the 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 church fathers were between this time period um, they endeavor to study the scriptures with along the more more of a more of a scientific mind and develop their theological meanings and their weight of their work during this time period um, is really one of those things that um, will influence the way we look at the church altogether, the way we as Christians. See, we like to say, well, we're sole scriptura. We're solely the Bible. That's what we like to think, right? We like to say that. We like to say, "Ah, we're only about this but it's the Bible plus all these people that have helped us understand it and translate it and influence the way we think. And I mean, well, we were talking about the Nicene Council of Nicaea, how we just developed the idea of the Trinity in those, how we relate to God. These were all things that help us define these things. And we've, uh, you know, so it's, it's yes, it's, so, it's the scripture, and so, but it's also all these people that have helped us use the scriptures and helped us develop the way we think. And we can't escape that that's influenced the way we think. We read the scriptures based off of this way of thinking. Um, so this, so, and so these church fathers, very influential. So the first one we're going to talk about, the first group we're going to talk about are the Eastern post-Nicene church fathers. And I don't know why it put that subheader to provide more information on everyone on those two slides. I have no idea. Um, but the, um, the Eastern church fathers, now a good way to remember East versus the West. This is, took me forever to remember this because they're kind of like the East and the West is not like a, a divide, you know, it's not like there's a line and it's this, you know, there's, there's, it's more based on geography and, and, you know, if you don't study your geography, you're like, well, these mountains put it in the east, and this mountains put it in the west. You know, the good way to remember is if they spoke Latin primary, they're west. If they speak Greek primarily, 
their east. So, so like when we talk about the Orthodox churches that will, will be the Eastern churches, the Eastern Orthodox churches and stuff like that, that will eventually split organically starting in 451, but then it, we really label it in 1055. Um, it's they are the Greek speaking. So, so like we, uh, they're the Greek speaking churches. And we even have those churches in the United States and uh, even a, a few of our members here. Uh, go are, are Eastern Orthodox uh, in, in, in doctrine. Um, you can, uh, a good person to ask about it is Vasilio, Billy, our cook. Uh, he's Eastern Orthodox. He's from the Greek-speaking backgrounds. Now, as we divide, we're going to, right now, we're kind of focusing on both East and West. Eventually, we're going to have to just focus on the West because that's what's going to influence us in the United States more. So, there's just too much for me to talk about everything. Because um, we've already skipped a lot. <laughs> uh, but these, the Eastern Church Fathers, Eastern Church Fathers, um, these belong to the Alexandrian and the Antioch schools. Um, and um, they... they they want to avoid what Origen did and did allegorical speaking. Remember Origen? He was one of those church fathers we've already talked about. He had that solely allegorical way of looking at the Bible. and like Nothing's really true. It's all allegorical. Um, but So they avoid that, but they're still from this, the Alexandrian school. And probably the most famous from this area is John Christodom. Now, that handout I gave you is actually one of his writings. This is actually the, the Acts of the Apostles by St. John Kirtum. Archbishop of Cantonoble, uh, Constantinople, this is part of the public domain. So if you're watching us online, you can type it in, and I'm sure you can find a copy of it online. Um, but this is just one of his homilies. Uh, John Christodom... Uh, was from about 434, uh, see, 347 to 407. Um, he, uh, he was called Christodom, he was just John, uh, shortly after his death because his elegance was, uh, he was named, it means golden mouth. He was John Golden Mouth. That's what it translates into English. Uh, that's, he was... Such a great speaker that they called him Golden Mouth. <laughs> and when you read this, if you choose to read this homily, um, you know, take the time. Obviously, it's been translated into English. You, you can read it at home. We're not going to read it today. Um, but you can read it at home. It's, it has a lot of that. He, he, you know, it, the author tries to capture some of that Golden Mouth. Um, but it was in Greek, so. Yeah. My brother James says, that was a very nice homily. What, so homily, what, what's the, what's it, is it a message? Or um, yeah, you know, a homily is, well, you know what, I'm going to, I don't want to misspeak. Yeah. I'm going to look up the exact definition so I get it just right because I don't want to misspeak. Um. A religious discourse. Thank you. 
So a sermon would fall into that. A speech would fall into that. A a a, uh, a monologue, like on a play, a religious monologue in a play, could fall into that. A religious song could fall into that. A discourse in, yeah, like a psalm could fall into as a homily. Um, so yeah, so it's um, it's yeah, so it, it's it's really just kind of any religious. Speech, <laughs> message. Yeah, he had a great homily. You could say that. Mm-hmm. Or it was a lousy homily. You could say that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that. So yeah, so this this homily, it's uh, homily number one. Uh, so religious discourse number one on the book of Acts. Um, yeah, so Golden Mouth. He was born to a wealthy family. Um, she, his, her, his mother was widowed very early in her life. I want to say it was in the 20s. And she devoted all herself to her son. She never remarried, just devoted herself to his education, his teachings. He was very, um, he was a student of uh, Libanus, a sophist. Um, he was a friend of Emperor Julian. Um, you know, he was good. He got great training in the classical Greek rhetorics, practiced law. But sometime around 368, he becomes baptized. We, we're, I don't know the story of how he came to know Jesus and, and all that, but at 360, around 368, he becomes baptized. Um, and he becomes a monk. So he goes from like the extreme, like, you know, where he's practicing law, making very much money and Greek rhetoric, and then he goes, becomes a monk. And yes, where you like give everything away and you go live in a cloister and... Um, and so he goes to the, the, that extreme. Now, his mother dies in 374, and so he will practice a, uh, a, a severely ascetic life until 380, um, living in, in a cave on a mountain near Antioch. So he even goes to the point where he's living in a cave. Um, he actually has to stop his regiment of that lifestyle because he gets sick. Severely Ill, Ill, which is one of the dangers of living in a cave, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, um, in three, let's see, I have it written down here. Three eighty-six. Um, he he he's in. He preaches some of his best sermons in Antioch until three ninety-eight, and you can read some of those online. Um, and he, he in three ninety-eight he becomes the uh, archbishop or the patriarch of Constantinople. He's going to hold this position until the Empress of uh, uh, Empress, I'm, I'm going to butcher this name, Eudoxia uh, banished him in 401 because he denounced her for her, ex- her extravagant dress and for placing a silver statue of herself near St. Sophia the, where he preached. 
So she built herself a statue. He denounces her. She has him kicked out. Makes a complaint about kicking, to get him kicked out. He's going to die in exile in, 40, in 407. Um, where, and, and all of his writings, you're going to see a, 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 an emphasis on, um, on rebuking highly placed uh, wealthy individuals. You know, he's going to, he wants, um, he wants people to be ascetic. And practice giving to the poor and, and even to the point of, of sacrificing themselves. Um, he write, he has about 640 homilies that we still have in existence today. That means 1,500 years later, we still have about 640 of them. We have no idea how many he wrote. <laughs> uh, no idea. Um, most of his sermons and homilies are exposition of Paul's epistles. He really liked Paul. Uh, he could not, he, did, he didn't read Hebrew, which was kind of unusual for a lot of the church, early church fathers. Um, so he can't make critical investigation of the Old Testament, but he, uh, but he does practice an emphasis on the literal importance of the time and the people that it was speaking to. So he wants to, so he, he remember we talked about, when we were talking about Old Testament, we talked about our encyclopedia. And our encyclopedia doesn't match up with their encyclopedia. And so sometimes when we, we read something, it, we use our encyclopedia and we're missing the point because we're not using their encyclopedia. <laughs> John was very much about trying to recapture their encyclopedia. Say, what did they mean? What does it mean for the author of the time? What did it mean for the people at the time? What is, something that I think we're starting to re-grasp here in the United States. We lost that in the United States for a good, good amount of time. We stopped focusing on them, only focusing on ourselves. Uh, not everyone in the United States, but as a, a large group, stopped focusing on, you know, uh, what does it mean for them? We only focused on our, what does it mean for us? And so we've missed a lot of the points because it does, our encyclopedia doesn't match their encyclopedia. And so he was very much about that. Um, he teaches, one of the things that he teaches... Um, Probably one of the most is the divorce. There's no to be no divorce of morals and religion. The cross and ethics must go hand in hand, um, which is a great statement. Um, okay, so that's Christendom, great church father, um, golden mouth. Let me see, I need to go to the next slide. Oh, there's John Christendom. There he is. There's another one. Nope. This guy right here. All right. Is Theodore 350 to 428. Uh, Theodore of another name I'm going to butcher, so 
Um, Mose, mopsustia, mopsustia. Um, yeah, I'm sure I butchered that all over the place. Um, he's too got a, born to a wealthy family, got a great education, became ordained as a presbyter in Antioch in 383. Um. He has been called um, the prince of ancient exegetics. Exegetics is, when we talk about exegetics, we're talking about looking at the scriptures and seeing and and, and getting meaning from them. Uh, There's eisegetics where we put meaning into the scriptures. And exegetics is pulling it out. Eisegetics is wrong, though lots of people practice it. (laughs) Exegetics is good. Um, exegetics is where you, you pull meaning out of the scriptures. You go and you say, well, this is what the passage says. This is what it meant for them. It's called hermeneutics. Exegetics is that process. And so Theodore has been called the prince of exegetics. Um, he uh, opposes a allegorical system of interpretation. Um, and through his understanding of, he, he's foc- he focuses a great deal on the grammar of the text. Which, for some of you, are like, that sounds really boring. But if you're a grammar, <laughs> it's really interesting. And um, I was learning today, they have like four words for this person in Greek. And I have to memorize them for my Greek class. <laughs> um, but, um, and so he, he, he's really focused on the grammar text. He's, he's looking at the historical background of the text. And he's trying to determine meaning for the, of the writer, what the writer was, the meaning of the writer was trying to say, and that, and we, we think, well, they were back then, but not really, because he's at th- he's four hundred years since Jesus, and thousands of years since the Old Testament, so there's still that exegetics that's going on, and so he's still trying to grab that. What's the historical context before this? Um, so he's trying to find that, that, uh, that, that and so he, all that study makes him a, a commenter, a theologian. He writes commentaries on books such as Colossians and Thessalonians. Um, so, Prince of Exeters. And then, in the East, this next one is probably my favorite, Eusebius. Now, whether you recognize it or not, I have quoted him many times in my sermons. Eusebius is, um, is known as the uh, church historian. <laughs> he is the, um, and you can still buy his works, the works of Eusebius, and it's, uh, it's all about the church history. And uh, it's one of the most widely studied church fathers of um, out there. And um, Eusebius, uh, another good educated man uh, from uh, Pamphilius, um, well read, and he did everything he could to get more and more resources for his studies. 
which I guess one of the reasons I like him, right? I always got to have more resources. <laughs> and um, so, um, so he, he, he takes, um, he preserves some of the best literature we have of ancient profane work. Well, profane is, means not, not scriptural works, but also scriptures and commentaries. He gathers it all up. And actually, some of the stuff we have, a lot of the stuff we have in existence today, we can think because he gathered it up as a historian. He said, no, this is important. I, ha- I got to have a copy of this. I got to have this. I got to have this for my research. So we can read his works and we can say, oh, he's quoting something here. We may not have that quote anymore, but we have his, because he's, re- he's quoted it, he's made reference to it. So we can thank him for a lot of stuff that we would not have otherwise. Um, so um, he was uh, said to be a gentle and agreeable sort who disliked quarrels. Um, and liked to spend most of his time, obviously, in books. Um, he was given a place of honor at the right hand of Constantine at the Council of Nicaea Um, it was the Caesarean Creed put forth by Eusebius that was uh, modified at the Council of Nicaea and, uh, and accepted. So he's the one who wrote the, the base of what will become the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. Eusebius. Um, his survey of history starts at the Apologist, kind of where we started, and goes to 324, and where he makes record of the past trials of the church and his struggles. Um, No, no, I don't want to say he's a great historian. Um, he's responsible for some of the, the best things we know about how the Bible was formed and um, and, and what things happened. And um, he wrote a bibliography on Constantine. Um, and he wrote with... Um, I guess the um, high standards of the time wouldn't have met up to today's standard because, you know, we have to have prayer reading and, and, and uh, bibliography and, and uh, you, know, lay, you know, reading it by, you know, proofread. And <laughs> but for the time, it, it was really, uh, he was, at the time, he was very well trained and, um, and he... Um, he wrote against other historians who were less thorough and accurate as himself because they wanted to just say this is what happened without giving evidence. And he wrote against them. Um, so anyways, Eusebius. Um, great work. Personal favorite of mine. Um, all right, and you know there are other church history. I'm only grabbing a couple. I don't. I don't want to tell, tell you everyone. Um, those book series you guys got me as a gift, wonderful gift, comes from this period, and 
So all that, that was volume two from this period. <laughs> so that big O series was volume two of this period. So there's a lot of things. So um, the Western post-Nicene uh, church fathers. Um, now these are the Latin ones, and they're going to be different from the East. Um, they're... Um, They're going to be, uh, well, they're going to be more on like translating the scriptures and, um, and, um, and whatnot. Um, these are going to be some of the biggest names in church history um, for the coming Catholic church, the Catholic church, such as Jerome, um, who was in, he was a commentator and translator. Um, Jerome became Bishop of Rome in 382. Um, and he, he suggested, and it suggested that, that a new translation of the Bible might be good. And so in 386, Jerome went to Palestine and, um, through the generosity of Paula, a wealthy Roman woman who he who he had taught uh, he had taught Hebrew, he lived in a retreat, and he for thirty five years he works on a Latin translation of the Bible. Because um, remember, it's it's Greek at this time, um, and Latin is becoming the lingua franca, the language of the people. And we're, we're seeing that split start to develop between the East and the West, even more because the language is starting to divide. Anytime language divides, we start seeing a bigger divide. Um, and so we start seeing these, uh, this, this language split. And so we have Latin. And Jerome is known for writing the, and his best known work is the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible. It's the best known Latin translation of the Bible. Um, it will be the version of sorts that the Roman Catholic Church will use for the next thousand years. Um, actually, when they started translating it into German and uh, English and, and uh, st- a lot of kickback, well, of course, we still have churches today that use the Vulgate as the primary uh, yeah, we still have Catholic churches that still use uh, the Vulgate as the primary because they, they, they're all, their masses are in Latin. Um, so he, it, you know, he so he wrote the Vulgate. He he completes a revision of the New Testament, um, and, and these are some of the most important things that happened. Uh, we have some of the things we we. <laughs> here's a, a wonderful example of how the Vulgate has changed our lives. All right, angelos. You can guess what that means, right? What does that mean? Angel, right? This angelos. In the Hebrew, the Greek, the word for angel uh, just means uh, it means messenger. It can be a human messenger or a divine messenger. Works for both. It was in the Latin that it meant heavenly being. 
So when we think of all heavenly beings as angels, see in the Hebrew there's lots of different types of heavenly beings, right? There's the cherubim and the seraphim and the and the you know the messengers and the the archangels, and you have these different names for for these all the heavenly host is what they're called in the Old Testament, the heavenly host. Well, when it gets translated in Latin, it just means heavenly beings, and so all the heavenly host is thrown into one pile of angels. And we still think about it in those terms. And so the, the, Vol, the Vulgate has really influenced the way we in our churches think about theology because of, this, the, of things like that. Very influential, the work of Jerome. Um, he writes commentator, commentaries as well. Um, I think, let's see, what is this? Um, Jerome's, yeah, here's a quote. Jerome's version of the Bible has been widely used by the Western Church and has been, until recently, the only official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church since the Council of Trent. I knew I had a quote somewhere there. So, very influential. And the Roman Catholic Church, whether you like the Roman Catholic Church or dislike it, if you're from a Western school of thought, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, you know, if you're not from one of the Greek-speaking churches, the Eastern Orthodox or the, or the, uh, you know, the Oriental Church, you've been highly influenced by the work of Jerome. And just the way it thinks, the way we think, it's, 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 it is what it is. Um, so very influential. Uh, the next one I have here um, is, ah, there he is, Ambrose. Ambrose. He was a minister and a preacher. I read one author that suggested that Ambrose wasn't even a Christian but just a, preach, a person who was, went into power. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm sure the Catholic Church would say, are you otherwise? I'm sure some historians say this, but I did read one book that, was, that said that. Um, um, he was an educated political firm, and at, one, at some time he was asked to move into the position of a bishop. So some people argue that he really wasn't even a Christian. He just moved into a position of power. That is not for me to say. I'll leave that to the historians that study these things. But I read that out there. Um, but he does, according to the, the, the tradition that follows him as being a Christian, um, he does believe to be the call of God, gives up his high position, distributes his money to the poor, and become a bishop um, with intense study of scripture and theology. Um, so, he spoke against different powerful groups. Um, he, including in uh, Theodonysus. Uh, you like Theodonysus. Emperor Theodonysus in 390, he marches people of Thessalonica um, into the square and orders of them massacred. Over 7,000 people are killed. Um, 
And so uh, Ambrose will speak against this. I mean, can you imagine speaking against someone who has the power that has just, you know, that has, you know, 7,000 people at his town and you're going to speak against him? That's that's pretty bold. (laughs) Um, So so he speaks against them. now, one of the things that we, we don't, we neglect, but um, he is the one. This is probably the most thing that influences you guys personally. He introduces congregational singing of hymns and psalmality into the church, the Western church. Uh, Ambrose, in, 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 in during his, his time in the 390s, the 400s, that's where we get the idea of singing hymns in the church and we're still doing that kind of stuff today now we've changed the style and the songs and the we've introduced instruments and we've got this you know speakers that we can play music over but he's the one who introduced that into the church um so um so so very influential in that regard one last guy and then we'll, we'll quit for the night one last one i i just chose a few this one, if you have not read his confessions, the Confessions of St. Augustine, it's a worthy read. It is a tough read, but it's a worthy read. Confessions of St. Augustine. His Confessions is probably one of the most influential books about Christianity of the time period. Uh, Augustine himself is probably the most influential of the church fathers. Uh, we've already mentioned some of the things. He's the reason, like we have the Holy Spirit the way we do, and the, I mean, when we look at the Trinity the way we do, and because of Augustine, um, both Protestants and Roman Catholics, reformers, all pay tribute to constant uh, to Augustine for his contributions in, in Christianity. Um, he was a polemicist, which is a person who engages in controversial debates. <laughs> and that's, uh, so he's a, a preacher, an administrator, a theologian, phil- phil- uh, philosopher, uh, philosopher. Um, so, um, and, you know, he, he insists that we must look forward to the city of God, a spiritual civilization. Um, and we, you can read his, 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 uh, his confessions. He was born in around 354 at the home of Roman officials of North Africa. Um, his mother prayed for the conversion to Christian faith, but his days were full of... Um, not so Christian activities. Um, he was a, a man, Aug- uh, uh, Augustine, Saint Augustine, um, and you can read about it in his 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 how he was into women and the the money and the you know he was he would have been he would have been the rock and roll star of his time you know he was <laughs> um he was into he was you know uh, he he got away um he indulged his passions with many uh, he i think it says in his book illegitimate unions with a concubine i think it's what it said in his books 
so, um, so uh, eventually he's at home. Um, he's having a crisis of conviction and he's meditating on his spiritual needs in his garden and he hears a voice from someone next door, traditionally a, a young lady, saying, take up and read. And he opens the Bible to Romans 13, 13 through 14. I want to read that right now. 13, 13 through 14. Who has that? Someone have the Bible. I know some of you guys have a Bible. We're in a church. David, you got it. <laughs> Romans 13, 13 through 14. Thirteen, thirteen, and 14. Thank you, David. So this passage was about everything he'd been doing in his life and saying, don't do this. <laughs> don't be drunk. Don't be with having sexual liaisons. Don't be. And so he picks up and he, as, as he reads and talks about his career, he picked it up and he read and this is what it was. <laughs> and that's his confession. And so he uh, dismisses his concubines, gives up his profession of rhetoric um, uh, his mother, who prayed for his conversion, dies shortly after he's baptized. Um, so he goes away, he studies, he becomes an ordained priest in 391. Um, he's concentrated the Bishop of Hippo, that's Augustine of Hippo. And uh, he'll have that position until 430 when he, uh, uh, where he dies. And, um, and so... He left uh, over 100 books, 500 sermons, and 200 letters that we have today. Uh, so if you like to, you mean, and yes, they're all public domain, so you can read all of them if you so desire. I've read many of them myself. Um, not all of them, though. Um, so, yeah, and... Uh, Confessions is probably the greatest autobiography work of its time. Um, it was completed by 401. It's now uh, considered one of the greatest works, uh, like one of those classics that everyone should read. It's, it's usually in one of those lists. Um, so... Uh, he was from... Um, uh, northern, um, no, no, northern Africa, North African. Um, think, uh, what, what's there today? Um, Egypt. It, it was actually in Egypt. So Egypt, uh, Alexandria would be in Egypt, uh, Sudan, uh, Tunisia. Um, it's all Muslim territory now. Um, if you look at the map of the, uh, uh, you look at a map and you see the Mediterranean Sea, and Jerusalem is is here, and you have the Mediterranean Sea, you have Jerusalem, and you have 
See, I'm going backwards for you guys. So, uh, I'll go this way. So we have Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem here, Rome's over here. This whole area right here is North Africa. And there's Alexandria was the the capital of the time. It was the biggest city at the time. It's no longer. It will be destroyed. But, um, um, but yeah. But it's going to be. Um, but he's going to be from this North African region, which is um, all Muslim territory now. Algeria. Thank you. Modern day Algeria. Um, so. So if you want to know about Algeria, Star's been there. <laughs> um, so, um, but his works, um, philosophical works, his um, theological works, so influential on the church. Um, so very much someone you should pay attention to in your readings. St. Augustine, this is very influential. Um, I think I'm going to step out on a limb here, but between Paul and Martin Luther, St. Augustine is probably the most influential character in church history. I'm stepping out on a limb here, but I want to say between Paul and Martin Luther, Augustine is probably the most influential character. So... Um, um, so anyways uh, do we have any questions concerns comments David yes he was Augustine uh, teaches you know because um Luther teaches, his, he's famous for, on this stand, we shall live by, man shall live by faith alone, right? Um, and, and this is um, something that, that, that he is uh, known for, but it was actually Augustine was, was preaching that Martin Luther is, is finding this through. He is, he is preaching that before, uh, you know, uh, a thousand years before, Augustine is preaching the same thing. That's that's right. Paul from Habakkuk. Um, <laughs> yep, Romans. Uh, it was taken from Romans. Taken from Habakkuk, chapter three, I think three. Yeah, I think it's Habakkuk number three. Um, Habakkuk chapter 3 I, don't quote me on that you can look it up for yourselves I think it's Habakkuk chapter 3 that it's from but um, yeah so it's, it's um, so Luther will be very heavily very very heavily influenced by Augustine which is one of the reasons why he's so important to all the American churches <laughs> um, so um so, um, all right. Anything else? Yep, Augustine, great character. 
Uh, so we're going to cover some good people today. Jerome, Augustine, Eusebius, Goldenmouth, um, Theodore. Um, so let's go ahead and pray and we'll dismiss. Next week we're going to talk about monasticism and the cloisters. The monks, and that's going to end, once we finish that, which will be finished next week, we're going to end the ancient church history period, and we're going to move into the Middle Ages. Yeah, so, so we're, we're, almost, we're out, almost out of the ancient period, we're going to move into the Middle Ages, um, so, and that will end really with the Reformation, so. I guess in church history anyways. Uh, <laughs> so let's pray. Uh, Father God, we praise you today, Lord. We thank you for uh, all the wonderful blessings that uh, you have given us, Lord. We pray that uh, you just uh, help us to dialogue with the past and, and, and let our knowledge of truth set us, uh, of, of the past set us free, that we may move into the future. Um with your wisdom and knowledge that you have given us through the the wonderful blessing of the past. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.